Welcome to the Smith Sense Podcast with Matt Smith. I'm Anthony Bruno, and every week I interview Matt about topics concerning leadership, entrepreneurship, management, business strategy, and much more. This week we get into what's called normalcy bias, which is the trap we all fall into when thinking that tomorrow will be just like yesterday. It's unfortunate that it took a global pandemic with far-reaching consequences to snap many of us out of that trap, but that's the situation that we're in. So this week we talk about just that, normalcy bias, how to recognize it, how to challenge our assumptions regularly to avoid getting sucked into this trap. The pandemic might be the spark of the conversation, but the lessons that we learn from it span far outside this present reality and leave some lasting lessons. I know I'll take them with me once we get past our current challenges, and I hope you do as well. So with that, let's get into it. This is Smith Sense, and here's Matt. So I had a question for you. I know the timing might be different from when folks are listening to when we're recording, but right now we're seeing quite a lot of activity and decisions being made regarding responses to the coronavirus situation. One of the bigger ones being events being canceled, companies really looking more seriously at their work-from-home situations. These are all things that you had implemented with us at Royalty Exchange almost three weeks ago now. I'm not going to ask you about how you had a crystal ball, the new things were coming or anything like that, but like, can you explain at all maybe how you think you were able to be a little ahead of the game on some of the decisions that you made versus people kind of just sort of finally getting to this point now? Well, and I think they're just actually beginning now, starting to get to that point of even just recognizing that this is actually a thing. It's like yesterday, the WHO declared it a pandemic, finally. And so then that word means something to people. So when they say that word, then everybody goes, whoa, what? Maybe I should pay attention. And that's really important. And I'll come back to that in a second, that wait, what experience that people have. And then also then our president had a uh, Oval Office announcement last week. And actually, I told my girlfriend last week, I said, by mid next week, he's going to have to do an Oval Office address. You know, as someone who works for you, I really want to be careful about not sounding like I'm just blowing smoke here or anything like that. But it's been rather almost disconcerting how (laughs) you kind of called it almost every step of the way. And it's a little frightening almost. But just generally the mindset that you're able to get into in terms of how you're analyzing it and sort of incorporating information that you've been receiving and such. I think there are two main things. People are very, very bad at understanding risk. The use of POP statistics has made it so that people has really actually been disempowering to people because they could say, you know, there's more people that are killed in bathtubs each year than have died so far from the coronavirus. You know, you get stuff like that. You get these sort of like limited, really snarky statistical information is really limiting then thinking about numbers and exponents is really hard. It's totally unintuitive to the human mind. You have to stop and think about it in order to understand how they work. So I think that I have a better appreciation for risk than maybe the average person does as a serial entrepreneur. And I also been through, this is the third one in my lifetime that I've been an adult for and been, this is the second one where I've been responsible for other people. The first one was the dot-com and then the financial crisis and then this one. And so the dot-com one, you could definitely see it coming. I didn't know what to do, but you could see it coming. Certainly, you could see the financial crisis coming. I mean, I sold my business. I moved to Argentina in advance of that. And you could see this one coming too. The real difficulty that people have is something called normalcy bias. It's a characteristic that all humans have, and it serves us well 99% of the time. It's the basic view that tomorrow will look a lot like yesterday. And you can't even see or incorporate information that's contrary to that. So whatever happened yesterday, if someone tells you that tomorrow something is going to happen that's so extraordinary, that just doesn't fit with any context you have, then they're likely to totally set it aside. They're going to likely to make fun of it, if anything. And so I think that 
I am really suspicious of my own normalcy bias. I'm really suspicious of my own biases and I'm really suspicious of it in others. And you can see it constantly in people's behavior. So I think I'm maybe more suspicious or more cynical than others. Maybe that's why that I saw this stuff early, but there's plenty of people who saw it early. And there are a lot of people that were talking about this. I would say certainly by the middle of the first week of February, I found a lot of people that were talking about the same subject. You mentioned that this recency bias is something that serves us well 99% of the time. How do you know when it's the 1% where it's not going to work? Yeah, I think it's, you don't have to identify what is the 1%. I think that would be really hard. I think it'd just be recognized that you tend to assume that things that are really outside of your control are always going to be okay is a weird assumption. And I think that that's where people go wrong because when I flip the lights, the lights always go on and they never consider really, unless they live in a hurricane zone or something like that, it never really enters their mind that someday they might wake up and you know flip the light switch and the lights won't come on. To look at the world around you and all the complexity of the world around you and understand that we take it all for granted and think about where those things are likely to fail. I mean, the thing that has me most concerned, honestly, about all this stuff with the coronavirus is the supply chain issue, which we won't experience for probably another, not in any serious way, for another four to six weeks. But that's a way bigger problem, honestly. But just understanding all the complex systems around you, you know, you can control what you do and you control the things in your immediate proximity, but there's so many things you can't control. And I think recognizing stoic practice, actually, which is the fundamental idea is recognizing what is in your control and what is not in your control. You're trying to expand the boundaries of what's in your control and, you know, take ownership over it. But fundamentally, it's recognizing the things that aren't in your control and understanding the chaos that can ensue because of them. Nassim Taleb, who I highly recommend everything the guy writes, he's a genius. A lot of people find him surly and unpleasant. I think he's just funny, but he's really a genius. And he's the guy who came up with the concept of black swan. He calls the, um, the normalcy bias the turkey problem. He says, a turkey is fed for a thousand days by a butcher, and every day confirms to the turkey and the turkey's economics department and the turkey's risk management department and the turkey's analytical department that the butcher loves turkeys. And every day brings more confidence to that statement. But on day 1001, there will be a surprise for the turkey. Thanksgiving, obviously. Exactly. So we all have that. And the more time goes by with things being normal, like I was watching with the stock market, which is getting crushed, of course. I was watching some analyst on Friday on Bloomberg talking about it. And obviously a very smart person. She graduated from Harvard in 2008. Her first year working was the first year of the bull market, which has been going nonstop since then, she manages the derivatives desk at a major financial institution. She's never seen a downturn in her life. So she assumes it's all going to be fine. All this complexity and all the derivatives markets are all going to be fine. It's like, it doesn't have to be. I think what you've come down to is just a habit of understanding and being highly aware of what is in your control and what is not. And also examining those things that are not in your control to understand which of those things have the potential to create the largest amount of problems, for lack of a better word. Exactly. There can be cascading risk. Again, if you're invested in the stock market and you see that we've had a huge bull market, and then last year stocks went up a ton, it feels like the risk of losing money is greater than the, the greed of trying to get more. You can feel it, but you can feel the sentiment around you. And all you need is one company failure, one major company failure, and all of a sudden the thing falls apart. We end up getting a pandemic instead, which could realistically cause the failure of entire industries. Right, exactly. When you're looking in those areas that are outside of your control and you think about which one has, I think you call it the cascading risk. Cascading effects is something that it causes a systematic failure of things. Okay, there is a thing called normalcy bias. Yes, you should be in a mindset where tomorrow doesn't necessarily always look like yesterday, 
But then again, it's just so many potentials for risk and for danger and things like that. To try to think about all that at once can be really overwhelming, not to know where you should be focusing your attention. While things are going well, you should be recognizing where the biggest problems could occur that are outside of control and then sort of preparing for those in advance. And I'm just trying to understand how to better recognize which those things are, which gets me to the 1% and also to the risks and things like that. Maybe one way to think of it is that you have to constantly be on the look for things that don't fit the narrative. The narrative being normal, you know, that everything is normal and everything is good or that things are going to continue along their current trend. You have to have an open eye to see the things that contradict that idea. You look for and sort of collect these data points along the way. As an example, in the fall of last year, the Fed started intervening in something called the repo market, which is kind of complex, but they don't do that. They had never done that before. So that's weird. And they were doing it with billions of dollars a day. And everybody's like, nothing to see here. I didn't know what it meant then. They definitely didn't fit the narrative that we had the strongest economy ever, that everything was going great. So looking for and seeing that information, which was in the mainstream news, it wasn't like it was not there. It was mentioned, just like the coronavirus was mentioned on MSNBC in January. People didn't see it because it didn't fit the narrative they have in their head about what's going on. So I think just understanding that your bias is that you're going to only notice things. This is the confirmation bias. You're only going to notice things that fit your current narrative of the world. So knowing that, you have to look specifically for things that could mean that your narrative is wrong. I think that's the key. The Fed in the repo market last year was a big one for me. And then when you hear about the Chinese quarantining a city of 11 million people, the largest quarantine in human history in January, it's like, whoa, what the hell? There were things before that too. But like that was like, seriously, this is serious. Like who's paying attention to this? So it's like the information's all there. You don't actually have to be smart to see it. You just have to be looking for information that is not necessarily what you want to hear. That is information that doesn't fit the current narrative you have running through your head and that you see running among your friends' heads. Okay. Let me just take a step back then and ask you it's a little bit about how you got to this point where this is something that you do and that you recognize. And was there a hard lesson learned in the past where you didn't do this and were burned by it, for instance? Usually I learn things by making really terrible, awful mistakes that hurt so bad that they never heal and I'll never do it. Pain deep down. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, there's lots of things like that, definitely. Certainly in the dot-com boom, I had a company that I raised a lot of money for. I put all of my own money in it, which wasn't a lot, but it was everything that I had, and raised a substantial amount of money from outside investors. The stock market was going crazy. I was really young, so I was not running the company. I was putting vice president role, whatever that meant. Not that I would have made better decisions. I don't think I would have, but there was this craziness about raising more money. That's what we were doing, this raising money cycle, and then it all dried up and everything froze. We ended up running a triage essentially on the business to get it so it was cash flow positive. And then ultimately after mid-2000, I just shut it down and walked away from it because it wasn't a worthwhile pursuit at that point. Like we missed our opportunity. But I felt like those things, you kind of feel that something wasn't right. But at the same time, you're like, everyone around you is like, this is the way it works. You know, you raise a lot of money, you hire a bunch of people, you kind of keep pushing and everybody's making a lot of money in the stock market. It's easy to get sucked into it. And I was sucked into it to some degree. You feel like you're the only one who feels this way and everyone else around you is saying that it's normal. So you're like, okay, I must be wrong. They know more. I'll just go along with what's happening. That's right. That's definitely something I learned. And I think that that idea alone is particularly important. It's important when you feel those things, you should say them because when you, by saying them, you make it okay for other people to say it and you help other people get out of their whole, like shake them awake. No one wants to be the first one that says something that sounds like you might be insane, 
Yeah, there's a global pandemic that's basically going to shut down every border. That seems crazy. Doesn't seem crazy now. Doesn't seem crazy now, but it seemed crazy 30 days ago. So I didn't say that part, but I'd say like, that's a lesser extent. And my hope was that me saying some things to some people that it would make it okay for them to start saying it themselves or thinking about it and, and acting on it. But it is really hard for humans to see those things and then act on them because the instinct is, if there were really a problem, someone would tell me. Right. But what I'm wondering is, is it harder to do that now? I mean, I think that there's more chatter, there's more noise. I don't want to just put this on the news media, but like there's different news sources and then there's different agendas within news sources. There's, there's this whole social media thing, which is just completely a big smokescreen for so many things. And so to try to break through what's quote real versus what's just trying to get your attention, it seems a lot more difficult to do now. It seems much more difficult for a clear clarion message, no matter how well defended or presented to get through. Well, there's a lot of noise, that's for sure, but there's also a lot more signal than there used to be. If I couldn't validate some of my own worries, essentially, with the coronavirus, if I, if I didn't see videos of Chinese officials welding people into apartment buildings, I don't think I would have believed it. That was absolutely not covered in any you know, sanctioned press. This was just people in China who filmed it and put it on WeChat, and then some of that got out. So it's like, there's a big benefit to having it really open and having it not controlled from the top down, for sure, I think. But so if you're really curious and interested, if there's lots more information you can see. If you see something, news or information that doesn't fit the narrative, make a note of it, a mental note, be on the lookout. Do I see anything else that makes that more valid or that supports that that's real? And then you kind of build up these data points over time. And then it gets to a sort of a tipping point for me mentally, where then I start going proactively looking. I start trying to find out, trying to disprove essentially the idea that there might be something non-normal happening. Social media is great for that. And then in terms of you standing up and telling people, I just think, especially if you're early to something, people aren't going to believe you. And that's fine. But that's not it. You might be just that first data point that makes people go, yeah, whatever. But then the second time they hear it, they pay a lot more attention. Third time they pay more attention. So people should stand up and say something when they see something that's not normal. But what if you're late to the realization? There could be this feeling like, well, okay, it's too late. I can't do anything. So I'm going to continue with where I am because, yeah, I should have sold my stocks a month ago, but I can't. So I'm just going to stick. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Like, how do you address when you've clearly realized that there is a problem? You're far late to that realization. Now, what do I do? Because that could be equally as reinforcing to normalcy bias to a certain extent. It is actually both basically encourage you to do nothing and kind of whistle by the graveyard. And I think that truth is, is that things take a lot longer than you expect them to take. They always do. So when you think that you're late, there's often there's still time to do something. There's still time to change your behavior in some way. There's still time to contribute in some way. The stock market is a good example of one. I mean, everybody was saying it was too late two weeks ago to sell stocks, remember? It's definitely not too late. This hasn't even begun yet. It's 8% off of the all-time high. Like, this is not too late. Looking back 20 years, it'd be like, man, you got the top tick. You like hit it right on if you were 8% down and sold. There's also a bias that of stocks in particular, that people are much more willing to sell their winners, sell stocks when they're up, they hold on to their losers. It's a huge problem people have because the loss, as soon as you close that trade and capture that loss, that's way more painful to you than not getting a future gain. The, the sense of loss causes more pain than the idea that you might not get some upside in the future. So people are too afraid to sell stocks or to cut their losses because the loss is so painful, even when it's small and they let their losses grow and grow, feeling like you know there's nothing, they already missed it. You know, as it gets bigger, it's harder and harder for them to cut. 
Now, I'm not saying on like, you know, the last couple of days in the stock market, like we had today, that people should sell their stocks today. I think that would probably be a mistake at this point to sell. I think there'll be a time later soon to sell. But I think knowing that that's your bias, and I feel it too. I feel it. I could see it. I have stock that's way down. I would want us, you know, I'm like, man, that really sucks. And I'm like, yeah, I'll just wait for that one to come back. I'm going to ignore it. It's a mistake. So it's better if you can think about things in advance to kind of have a plan. So if you find yourself or you feel like you're too late, then you go, okay, well then let me come up with a stop loss. Let me come up with a plan. Like if it gets this much worse from here, then I'll sell. You should have had that plan maybe before, but you didn't, but have it now so that 10% loss doesn't turn into a 30% loss. I had a friend who had a business in town. It really got overextended. He borrowed money to buy his partner out. It's a physical products business, so his margins are small. A physical products e-commerce business. He just hit this huge cash crunch, and basically the business was just kind of collapsing around him. It's a slow motion train wreck. It's all train wrecks. I feel like they're actually slow motion like this, honestly. I was like, you have to get ahead of it. You can see it happening. Don't wait until it's too late. You still have all of this inventory, which is an asset. You can turn that inventory into cash. Like You can do something still if you'll move now. But if you wait, your choices are going to be so narrowed if you wait. So acting quickly is really important. It was exactly the situation with him. He felt like he got himself in a bad position and he was trapped in it. And so he felt like he had to continue riding that train. And I was like, you don't get off this thing, man. Just make some changes quickly. So it's never too late to do something or at least come up with a plan. Were there any other major themes or thoughts or lessons or things to look for that you wanted to bring up? Yeah, two major points. One, I want to talk one more about the coronavirus thing and then one about businesses and marketing. The one about the coronavirus is I think that the reason that people's refrain around this was it's just the flu, which people said for a month. When people were saying, well, this could be a problem, this could be a problem, everyone says this is just the flu or the flu is worse. You know, they're using those statistical comparisons. It's all about normalcy bias. And that is every time anyone's made a big deal out of you know, H1N1 or the swine flu or all that. And I heard those things too. I remember thinking, I think it was 2009, that H1N1 was a big deal. And I was doing a lot of traveling in Asia and, you know, they're taking your temperature everywhere you go. And I thought it was a joke. I really did. I thought it was a joke. I didn't know anyone who got it. It didn't seem real at all. Exactly. Because that's all of our collective experience with a pandemic. Those were labeled pandemics by the WHO. They were called pandemics. That's our experience with them. Because of that, when we first hear about something like that, we go, <laughs> It's just another sensational thing. Like we've heard about these before. They never count. I mean, I felt it too, you know, around those times. And I think the people going just the, the constant frame, it's just the flu. It's just because they were conditioned almost like a boy who cried wolf. It felt like big warnings about this being a problem and yet it really not being a problem. Absolutely. I mean, that's where I was on it as well. Like you've heard these things before. It didn't affect us before. You're aware it's a problem, but it's someone else's problem. That's where I kind of get confused words like, you know, what is a normalcy bias versus what's just to a certain extent experience. Our experiences with these types of things have been that. Like, yes, these are our problems. Yes, these things hurt people, but they didn't hurt me then. It wasn't a problem then, but there's no reason to think that it's going to be different now. But this is also why I wish that they would spend more time practicing or studying history in school instead of teaching gender studies to my middle school kids. If you actually read anything about the 1918 pandemic, it's unbelievably awful. And it happened not that long ago. And it's actually something that people have been worried about for a long time. I mean, the Gates Foundation sponsored in, I believe it was October or November of 2019, John Hopkins live like war game event where they basically played out a scenario where there was a pandemic that came from China. You can go find this on YouTube. You can find the video of the whole thing on YouTube. It's amazing. This has been a worry forever. So if you have like a bigger sense of like our limited life experience is insufficient 
to help us understand what's actually happening in systems that are way beyond our individual control. But again, on the day-to-day, having that normalcy bias helps us function through the day. And that's where the importance of leadership does come in, because for so many of us, our day-to-day doesn't necessarily afford us the ability to kind of have that big picture view, whereas people who are naturally in a state that should be leading a business or a city or whatever, their forward-thinking, forward-looking mindset is sort of already established, or at least it should be if they're any good. Allowing the fact that this is to a certain degree a cop-out, but you get into the, okay, I work, I have my job, I got this thing in front of me, I'm executing, I get home, I got my family, what's for dinner, how am I doing this, where's the schoolwork, you know? So you kind of already need to be in a place where you're able to think about these things more broadly, but this is so much of us get caught in that sort of routine and, and sort of that habit. Yeah, no, and it makes sense. It's totally reasonable for us to do this. And we outsource lots of things in our life. We outsource the water service in my home to the city. We don't have to worry about the water. The water always works. We pay them a small fee every month and it works. So that's the way our complicated society works. I mean, a complex society. And it's a good thing. However, when you have institutions that are so politically entrenched or whatever, that the best example of this for me was really the WHO. They just refused to call this a pandemic because of the stigma associated with it. But if they would have called it a pandemic, what that would have done, this is why it's so important for leaders to use clear language. We talked about this in our last recording, because those words have meaning. Because they have stigma, they matter. And if you tell people there's a global pandemic, it's likely to affect them unless they take action immediately. Then people go, wait, what? And they're likely to then do something. That wait, what? That's shocking them out of the routine that I just outlined. Exactly. That's what our leaders are there to do. And frankly, if they don't do that, all the other stuff that we have come to expect our leaders to do in our lives is all, I mean, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter if they don't do those few things that really actually affect lives of millions upon millions of people in a substantial way. If they don't do that, then everything else is or not, as far as I'm concerned. So they have to step up and they have to be willing to take the political heat and they have to be willing to be wrong and look like a fool if they pull the alarm. The thing is, if someone would have stopped it, the people ringing the bell about it would have been looked at as sensationalists. They would have won. They'd have to live with the fact that they won, that they succeeded, even though they get ridiculed later. That's the cost. That's what they're supposed to do. Now, the other thing you said you wanted to mention was business and I think marketing. Basically, knowing that people operate with a certain set of assumptions, some basic operating assumptions that create the foundation of their normalcy bias, that they operate on every single day about the way the world works, what things mean, what's possible and what's not possible. Those sort of operating assumptions guide all of their decisions throughout the day, most of which are automatic. And if you're trying to introduce a product or service to people, you have to understand where the people are at and you have to be able to frame the product or service in such a way that it will fit within their operating assumptions they're already working under. If it's outside of that, they won't notice it, just like people didn't notice the other thing I'm talking about. So if it's totally outside of their frame of reference, if it seems unbelievable to them because it's too good of a solution, or if it seems like it's not related enough, they won't even see it. And I think you can't get their attention if it's too far outside of their operating assumptions. We deal with that at Royalty Exchange constantly. People get so caught up. Like <laughs> You always say this, and I always find it so funny, is that you know we have this marketing, and I guess, for lack of a better word, sales operation, that's basically meant to convince people to give them money. Right. We want to give people money. And somehow that's a hurdle. Yes, it's the most interesting sales process where our sales process is let us give you money. Right, exactly. And the reason being is that the way that we're doing this, the way that we're able to provide people money, and this is not just about us, but this is an example of what you're talking about, is that the way that we're doing it is rather outside what people were accustomed to. Well, there was two parts to it, actually. So when it comes to buying and selling royalties and and things like that, 
you know, one is that private investors buying just a stake in your royalty stream, but not actually owning your copyright or your catalog and things like that. That's pretty weird and outside of the norm. And then on the other side of it, what is in the norm has always been filled with suspicion because there's been a lot of bad deals and a lot of people getting ripped off. So that's kind of a one-two punch in terms of the challenges with that. At the end of the day, you're trying to do something that they should obviously want, which is providing them with money. Right. It didn't really matter that much that our intentions are only positive, that we are totally dealing with everything completely transparently, that it's totally set up so that it creates the best possible outcome for all parties involved. It doesn't really matter if it fits with outside of their operating assumptions. It's hard to get what people call product market fit. It is the ideal solution for them, but if it's not within their context for even considering as a solution, then there's no way it can. And this has been the core thing we have struggled with as a business from the very beginning. And I would say that we haven't solved that problem. But what has happened along the way is that the operating assumptions that the artists have have evolved over the time we've been running the business. So we've been able to be more successful, not because we've been particularly good at shaping our product or the communication around our product so that it fit within their operating assumptions. Instead, it was that their set of operating assumptions have changed because of, you know, it's a pretty dynamic environment for in the creative community anyway. Product placements were totally not cool for artists to do that at a certain time ago, 20 years ago, whatever. And then now it's a sign of being sophisticated, smart. Yeah, licensing your music for advertising or other types of purposes was considered selling out. And now it's like a release strategy. Right. Yeah. And when you're smart, you're like negotiating with Pepsi, like you're legit in a whole new way. Much like that, artists starting to looking at their music as an economic asset that they can leverage and they can use to further their career and to have more control over their lives and all that, like that sort of zeitgeist is starting to come into being. I think that we've contributed to that change, but we haven't been the exclusive drivers of that change. And certainly, I think the only reason we've been able to continue to be successful as we have is because the market has changed, their operating assumptions have changed, they don't require a shock. We don't need to create a, wait, what? situation for them before they'll consider our product as a solution. And from a business context, your market, your audience, your customer has their own normalcy biases and you need to understand where you fit in to what they consider to be normal, right? And as a former ski instructor, that the lesson I always took was when you're trying to get someone on a hill to try to do something different, the adage was new technique, old terrain. And that basically meant is that you don't teach someone a new technique on a run they've never skied before because they're too busy focused on not dying or breaking something. <laughs> You want to introduce something new in an environment where they're comfortable. The same thing applies to what we're talking about here. That comes down to listening and understanding where your audience is, but also watching along the way so that when that changes, you can take advantage. And what you're saying with us is that normalcy environment has evolved. Yeah. And I think this is like a four-year period for us. We've seen it evolve quite a bit, but just like with the coronavirus situation, it seems like it's rather quickly, but it's really been dragged out and still most people aren't aware. It feels slow, like boiling frog, you know, if you're in it. And so being able to step outside of it and kind of try and look at it objectively and go, you know, what are the trends within the zeitgeist, the general zeitgeist of the way that people feel about things and trying to really craft your communication and the, you know, the shape of your product so that it fits as easily as possible within that zeitgeist. And that leadership idea also comes into play, whereas we're not the leaders that are able to do anything about it. It's more about externally. So for instance, within our situation, what happens was some very well-known, famous songwriters entered into some rather larger transactional deals, not necessarily with us. Several did it in a row, and that was sort of the wait what for some moments, right? There were some people who are in a position that they didn't quote unquote need to do it, 
but did it. And the other songwriters started to see, okay, this isn't something you do as a last resort, but something that these other people who are far more successful than I have done as a financial move. Maybe I should be considering this as well. That's sort of what's happening outside of our control. Exactly. Some super high profile deals that were big in the press that were that wait, what moment. And I think there's been, it wasn't a single wait, what moment, but there were lots of those. As those data points pile up, people adjust their point of view about what's normal. You know, then people can kind of move on and behave effectively in, you know, in a new environment. But a lot of times when people are crafting projects or products, they think too much about the product or solution or the business. It's too much focused on you and not understanding exactly where your customer is at. A lot of times people focus on customer service saying like we serve our customers and things like that. And that's, yes, of course, but like that's oftentimes cover for building the product you want to build. Instead, you have to like focusing instead on exactly where the customer is in their head and understanding of the world and exactly the way that their problems specifically work and shaping it for that in particular means that you have to compromise on a lot of things that you might think are really important about the product. You've heard many times that like, you know, as a famous quote from Henry Ford, if I asked what my customers wanted, they would have said a faster horse. So like, when do you bend around that? Well, I don't believe in customer surveys at all. I don't believe in asking your customer. I believe in observing your customer. People really don't know what they want. They really don't know. They don't necessarily know how to get it. Maybe that's more the thing. You know, people want it around, but their normalcy bias was, well, we use horses, so it need to be horses. Whereas like, if I can introduce a better way, a better how. Yeah, but I think you'll never get that from surveying customers. I don't think you'll ever get it. I'm always against those market studies about what people say they want. I mean, they're not scientific anyway. I think they provide totally wrong information. Instead, I think if you look at, if you can study the way people are actually behaving, you learn about asking a lot of questions about their experience to understand their experience, but don't ask them what they want. Information about the past that you collect from a potential customer, information about what they've done in the past is really informative. Information about what they say they will do in the future is not informative. Because what we say we will do in the future, even really believe we'll do in the future, often varies dramatically from what we actually do in the future. But what we've actually done in the past is useful. So yes, you don't build the product based upon the customer's specs, but you have to build it based upon a deep understanding of the customer problem and also, again, the operating assumptions that that customer is working in. I mean, one of the biggest things when we were coming into this is that our chief competitors were effectively companies that are like payday lenders. Our core goal at that time was just to differentiate from those guys. We were getting lumped into that category by industry partners even, just because they didn't know. So it was just knowing that that's their operating assumptions about people who do stuff like what we're doing are people that fall in this category, working to dispel that myth. But you had to know that myth existed first. You know, you had to know those assumptions were there. And then you structure the communication and the product around something that sort of proves that not to be true you know, challenging your own normalcy bias, but also having the ability to recognize the normalcy bias in others. And we all have it and it's really useful most of the time. Most of the time. See, there you go again. <laughs> Is there any books or any resources that you would encourage anyone to? There's uh, one book that I read a long time ago that I found fascinating that just kind of summarized some of these basic human drives. It's called Influence. It's written by a guy named Robert Cialdini. There's lots of very interesting information in there. And he certainly talks about normalcy bias in there, among other things. For instance, if you identify yourself as a Republican or Democrat, you subconsciously condition yourself to see certain information and not see other information. And you become more entrenched in positions than you would be otherwise. 
And that's why I like that more people identify as independents now, because it basically like that's more independent thinking is what it really is. It's not really independent political affiliation. So it's independent thinking where you can take an issue on its merits and really think about it, not along the party line. But as soon as you identify yourself as a Democrat, you're likely to take up a certain set of issues, even if you don't have a strong opinion about them. You're going to start to defend that side of things. It's just natural. We all do that. We're basically, we're trying to prove there's a desire, a deep human desire for consistency. And so if we do something, if we engage in some activity, especially if it's public and people see us do it, we feel a strong subconscious drive to make sure that our other behaviors that are done publicly are consistent with that. That's all congruent. And so we get into these tracks where we're not even thinking anymore. We're just behaving in a certain way because we've behaved a certain way in the past. So anyway, that book is, uh, I think, really informative of all that. And it's called Influence, and the author is Robert Cialdini. Well, I have a copy of that on my books. If I had it there for over a year, I have yet to crack the cover on it. So when I'm done freaking out about everything else, maybe I'll have some light reading to do uh, later today. You might have a lot of um, shut-in reading time on your hands coming up. Exactly. And uh, as opposed, it'll be probably more um, productive than binge-watching The Sopranos uh, that's currently happening. Well, thank you, Anthony. Thank you. That's been really informative. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.